0: Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. As Bill says, we're going to start today a series of messages on the church, the church defined. What is it that defines the church? What are the aspects of church that... You now the scriptures are important and that brought, have brought hope and life and transformation to this world for the last 2,000 plus years. That's really important that we explore some of those. We're going to look at what that means to be a serving church, a gifted church, a generous church, and a whole bunch more in the next few weeks. So church is not just uh, bricks and mortar. Uh, it's much more than that. We're going to look at those in the uh, days to come. Let me just pray. Father, we want to thank you for your church. We thank you that we're not just uh, a people or an organisation or a a building. We're your people, God, who you have infused life into by your spirit. And we thank you and praise you for that. Lord, speak to us today by your word and by your spirit. Open us up to what you want to say. And Lord, uh, help us be attentive to that in Jesus' name. Amen. Church is not an institution. It's not a denomination. It's not a religious order, it's not a holy huddle. It's a living, breathing God organism that God chose to be the way to impact and bring his kingdom to the world. It's much bigger than we think. It's not just something we do on Sunday or other days of the week, it's that, it's that important time. Let me just give you a little bit of context, because we want to going through, want to dispel some myths as well as out bring out some great aspects of the church, but let me give you some old my own context, when I, was, I didn't grow up in a church family, uh, at all, I was born in Northern Ireland, I don't advertise that much for obvious reasons, but, but uh, um, I, I grew up, I was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and in, in Northern Ireland, the church, there's only, only two churches, Catholic and Protestant, that's all there was, that's who you were, and quite frankly, if I learned very early, if you're one, you didn't like the other. That's how it works, in fact, in, in Belfast, in my growing up, to the first few years of my life, one part of the, of the city was where Catholics lived and the other part was where Protestants lived and you didn't sort of, you didn't go in between. It was just kind of a weird experience. And my view of the church was probably um, sort of respect but irrelevance. It didn't affect my life, didn't affect my parents' life. They didn't go, they were nominal. And I uh, came to Australia when I was nine and... Still didn't get involved anywhere in church, and it was still the kind of respect, if you like, respect that I didn't mind people going to church, didn't mind churches, that was fine, but still irrelevant. It didn't impact my daily life, it didn't uh, mean much to me apart from some people went and it was a building, etc. So, my background in church has not been, you know, maybe like many of yours. It was just a, a kind of an irrelevance, but respectable. You know, that's, that's what it was, that was the attitude. Um, I got married young and after a couple of years my wife and I started to explore and curious about this person of Jesus who is Jesus and who is he and we started to read and think and talk to others about who this person of Jesus was and came one week five days apart actually in one week to make a choice to deliberately follow Jesus for the rest of our lives because he said something to say and his life could impact me and, and make a difference in my life. So that's how it kind of uh, went. And then came church. We knew that if you followed Jesus, you kind of found church. So we started going to a little church and I'll never forget the first day I ever went to church. It was um, in a place called Elizabeth in South Australia. Anybody know Elizabeth? South Australia. And, and uh, My wife had been a couple of times and I hadn't been. Somehow you have this sort of sceptical, cynical view. So I rocked up to church. I got ready for church. I put on a blue bricky singlet and a pair of stubbies and thongs. And I said to my wife, if anybody mentions today when I go to church how I'm dressed, I'm never going back. That's it. So she probably walked in nervous as anything because she'd been a couple of times and met a few people. And I went in with a sort of a, maybe a little belligerent attitude, sit down. I'd met Jesus, but I hadn't been to church yet. And uh, I'm waiting for someone to say something. Nobody did. The end of the service, people came up, they were gracious, they were loving, they just engaged with me, they talked and they shared, and it put me off guard, because I'm waiting for some sort of, you know... Belligerent or antagonistic viewpoint. And I learned in those times, and we kept going to that church, it was a wonderful place to be. We were the youngest family by far. And, and just that church is not what we often think is not just a group of people, it's not just a building, it's the living, breathing body of Christ. And that's the kind of church you want to look at over the next few weeks. What does that mean? And how is it? And what does Jesus say about it? What does the Apostle Paul say about it? What do the Scriptures say about it? And how can we allow it not to be just irrelevant or just a Sunday thing, but how can church be something that makes a difference in our lives because it's a group of people following Jesus or exploring Jesus and wanting to make that difference? I want to read to you. We're looking today at who we are, sort of at a basic level, who we are as the church. One of the greatest, um, I think one of the most insightful passages of scripture about the church comes from the Apostle Peter who writes in his letter, uh, one of the first letter, chapter, chapter 2 of First Peter and he says this, and this is a great picture of the church. First Peter chapter 2 verse 4. As you come to him the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for, but listen to this definition. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is uh, Incredible picture of the church. You're a chosen people, a royal, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a declaring people, declaring the praise of him who brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's, there's some great pictures, some great you know, views of what the church is like. And I today want us to look, if you look, if you can read through that and read through the Acts, Acts chapter 2 and beyond, you'll just see some great pictures of the church that uh, is depicted in the New Testament. I want to just look at three aspects of church that I think are important for us today and we're going to look at many more over the next few weeks. The first one is this, that the church is a people of radical faith marked by boldness and courage. It's a people of radical faith marked by boldness and courage. I want to explain a little bit of that. There's a parallel passage in the Old Testament to the beginning of the church, which is the beginning of God's people moving into the promised land. It's kind of like a like a parallel passage. You read about it in the book of Joshua. And right in the first part of the book of Joshua, is that you see people moving from the wilderness. And they move from the wilderness where they have to depend every day to the promised land where they need we're. God says to them, you need to be bold and courageous. Every day you're getting manna and food from God, and it's kind of a bit passive, but you can just, you know you're going to get it for 40 years. But now when you get into the promised land, you've got to be bold and courageous, and he says that a number of times. Be bold and courageous, be bold and courageous. And as they're pressing into the promised land, crossing the Jordan River, God gives some instructions to the people, credible instructions to the people carrying the ark, which is if you like the presence of God across the river, so God's going to be in this new land. It's kind of a bit of a parallel to, to the beginning of the church. And we read this in Joshua 3, verse 8. It said, tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. In other words, before they got there, the river was flowing. It was a torrent down that river. And I love to... V- you know, visualize some of the things that would have happened behind the, behind the words you read. And the order is when the priests are carrying the, the, the presence of God across the river, they were to walk down the river and they were to put their feet in the water. And as they put their foot in the water, the water would part and it would stop uphill or up, upstream and it would go flow downstream. And they would walk through on dry ground. But they had to put their foot in the water first. You think about that. If that was me. I'd, I'd like to say, God, could you just make it dry before I get there? What, a, what an incredible thing to say to, to put your feet, as, a, as your foot hits the water, it dries. That's a bit scary. It's a bit freaky. It's a bit radical. It's kind of a, uh, and if you get worried by that word radical and you think it means weird and wonderful and woolly and wild, it doesn't mean. Radical just means going back to the roots, going back to the rads that's the word, rads equals roots radish is a root vegetable Radical faith means going back to the roots of our faith going back to the basis of our faith not going wild and woolly, it's just it's the basis of that and you understand when you look through the gospels that the basis of our faith is quite contrary or topsy turvy to the way that our world or our society or even ourselves think it is It's a topsy-turvy faith and we're called to live in that. By topsy-turvy, I mean it it says things like if you want to be first, you've got to be last. It says if you want to live, you've got to die. In other words, you've got to sacrifice. If you want to be great, you've got to serve. The Bible never tells anyone not to be great. It just tells you how to do it. You're great by serving. It's a topsy-turvy world. Many years ago in our in our country, one of our politicians, I won't tell you his name or what side of politics he's from, he said this in a speech. What will make our nation great are values of personal greed and aggressive self-interest. When you've got the leaders of your nation saying stuff like that, you know you need something different. You need a topsy-turvy faith. You need a, fir- a faith to say, well, the first will be last and the- Got to be great, you've got to serve. Because that's just not on. But that's the culture in which we, we get built in. That's the culture that is built around us personal greed and aggressive self interest. We live a topsy turvy, it's a radical faith. Just the very words of that passage I read out a living stone, how radical is that? Because stones are inert, stones are there. stones just sit there. We're living stones. That's a weird concept in itself. That Peter says, "Be a living stone." I remember when I was uh, at Bible college, and in Bible college, I'd been went to Bible college two years after I became a Christian. And every day in, in, in Bible college was uh, during the week. One of the students will share a testimony. They took chapel and shared their own testimony. And I remember being in testimony one day when a guy called Phil, who was from Tasmania, shared his testimony. And uh, he, he, shared his, you know, he shared what has happened. Phil was a drug dealer before he became a Christian. He was one of the major drug dealers in, in Tassie. A real was a real rags to riches story. It was an amazing story, and an enormous story. And I came out of chapel that day with two feelings. One was excitement for Phil, but a little bit of disconcertedness because I didn't have a story like Phil's. You know, I became a Christian, but I didn't come out of that sort of background. I just came out of a fairly decent sort of background and and became a Christian by choice. But Phil was able to tell this story of God had saved him from degradation and crime to a life of hope and purpose. And I was a little disconcerted about that. I remember saying to God, I got away by myself, and said, God, what have you saved me from? Now I know the theology of saved me from sin and death. I know know that, and I knew that, and that was never in doubt. But I can't say you've saved me from something like Phil's been saved from. And I said to God, God, what is it you've saved me from? And as, as clear as I'm standing here before you, not in an audible voice, but in a still small voice, God said to me, and this might sound strange, he said, Tim, I've saved you from a life of respectability. And he didn't mean by that, I don't believe that you weren't to be respectable or you weren't to respect others or you were to somehow to be a weird, weird person. That might be true, but I think what he meant was I'm, I've saved you from a life of just the status quo, the, the way things are, the way it's built around you. I've just saved you from a life like that. Saved you for a radical life for a different life, for a life that gets back to the roots of what the gospel's all about. I remember one day, a friend said to me one day, just out of the blue, he said, Tim, what are you trusting God for that only God can do? And I went, "Uh uh-oh. Because you can trust God and pray to God and trust God for a week, and if it doesn't come through in a week, then I'll go to plan B, and that's my plan. And I'll do that. I'll make it happen. But what do you trust in God for? Only God can do. And if God doesn't come through, it's not going to happen. And those sort of things challenge me. That we're meant to be a people of radical faith, radical courage, radical life. And by that, as I said, I don't mean weird and wonderful and wacky. Although God can make you as wack as he wants to. But I mean people who go back to the roots of the gospel, of the topsy-turvy world and life that he wants us to live in. We are called to be a people marked by radical faith and boldness and courage. Second thing I thought I want to share with you is that the church is a a people where grace and forgiveness are the relational glue. Grace and forgiveness are the relational glue. I intimated before, but the best decision I ever made in my life was one when I was 22 years old when I discovered the grace of God. And I discovered that God had a way of making me acceptable to him that had nothing to do with my ability to earn it or deserve it or work for it or perform for it. That wasn't what it was about. It was God choosing to give me his grace of life and of hope. It didn't rely on me. The trouble is sometimes we... In the church life, we sometimes combine law and grace. And this is how it works sometimes. We go, if you just get, law will take you to a certain level of decency and then we'll let grace kick in. You know, law will get you to a place of, you'll make you a decent citizen and then we'll allow grace to kick in. No, 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 no. Grace kicks in no matter who you are, if you allow it. You don't have to, Come and come to a certain level of decency and then let God kick into your life. God can kick into your life wherever you are. It doesn't have to be a certain level. We sometimes combine law and grace. Like, law will get me so far and then grace will take me further. No, 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 no. No. It's grace. God's grace and God's forgiveness. We often combine them. I love in that passage where the people of God are going to the promised land, they send out some spies. And the person who gives them haven and 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 uh, and a place to stay, God chooses a prostitute. I wouldn't have done that. Probably we wouldn't have done that. Someone unrespectable. God chooses a lady called Rahab. Every time you read her name in the Bible, it's Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot. He chooses her to give hope and give rescue and shelter for the spies. And he chooses her to be, the I think it's four greats, a great, 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 great grandmother of David and to be in the line of Jesus. He chooses people who are not respectable, who are not part of the, the nice group of people. But the church is about, the relational glue is, grace and forgiveness. That's how God has called us to be as a church. I want to share with you a photo. There'll be a photo come up on the screen of three gentlemen. Who I, perhaps the best, um, the most amazing meet, uh, meal I ever had was about three years ago now, not, not quite three years ago, when I was in Cambodia. And we had a meal with these three gentlemen. Not, the meal wasn't anything fantastic, but these guys, they shared their testimony with us. I won't tell you who's who, but one of those guys, you know the story of Cambodia, the killing fields where um, Paul Pot, the, um, the leader of the Khmer Rouge, went about kind of genocide of his own people and they, he killed all the elite people and by elite that meant somebody who had some sort of um, uh, profession, he just destroyed all the university professors, pastors, teachers, they all got you know, eliminated because they were a threat and That was his his deal, and uh, he had this army called the Khmer Rouge who executed all that. One of those gentlemen was a general in the Khmer Rouge. His job was to plot uh, massacres of his own people, day in, day out. One of those gentlemen was an officer in the Cambodian army who were fighting the Khmer Rouge. They were pretty weak, but they were fighting the Khmer Rouge, and he joined the army because his job as a public servant before that was to go out every morning and put in the back of truck, of the truck bodies that had been slaughtered the night before. And the third man on that um, photo is, uh, was a commander in a regional army who was fighting both. He was just sort of a regional rebel army. Each of those guys have now become followers of Jesus. They live in the same region. They link arms and lead three different ministries, Christian ministries, for uh, in their region, they shared each they shared their testimonies with, with tears. We were listening, I was with a group of about 10 people in absolute bawling our eyes out as they shared their stories of faith and how they've forgiven one another and how they now live together. They still live some of the consequences. The guy who was the general <laughs> said, I still see, visualize, not every day, but regularly, what I did but they now live arm in arm in incredible forgiveness and love and grace. And I walked out of that meeting and got back to Australia and thought to myself, that is extraordinary. If I ever hear someone when I get back complain about they didn't like the colour of the carpet or they didn't like the, the drapes we had in church or somebody, you know, went across onto their territory of ministry or something, something like that, and I've just shared this, I thought I'm gonna go crazy. That's true forgiveness. That's true letting go. Sometimes we get bent out of shape about the most extraordinary things, about things that don't really matter. They matter to us, but they should they? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That scripture said we're a royal priesthood. You know how priests worked in those days? in the thing called the day of atonement which is the day of forgiveness or the day of letting go people would bring with them to the priest in the temple a lamb or if they weren't wealthy enough they would bring a bird with them as a sacrifice and the priest wouldn't even look at them their forgiveness didn't depend on what they looked like or who they were or what they'd done the priest would look simply at the lamb and he would feel around the lamb to see if it was without blemish or without spot. And he would just see if the, if the lamb was okay. And if the lamb was okay, you were forgiven. Irrespective, hardly looked at you. The priest looked at the lamb. Same thing is true with us. Whatever you come to Jesus with, he, God, his father, looks at the lamb, not at you. It's a perfect lamb. It's a perfect sacrifice. And because of that, he doesn't need to look at you, though he knows you intimately, but he doesn't need to look at you, he just says, forgiven, because you have brought the lamb with you. It's an ext- incredible story of what happened in those days. I've got to tell you something, you will, one of the tensions we will live with for the rest of our lives in the church is this tension between full acceptance of people and no compromise of our faith and values we will live with it for the rest of our lives. If we ever solve it, look out. Because we, it's a tension we have to live with. And by that I mean we fully accept people. Paul says to the church uh, in Corinth, he says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you for the glory of God. Here's the question I ask myself. How did Christ accept me? The answer, Fully. Fully accepted me. He might not have liked everything I did but he fully accepted me. So the question for us as the church sometimes is, how do we fully accept people but we don't compromise our values? That's a tension you will live with and probably each one of us has a propensity for one end or the other. We just go fully accept them and we kind of compromise our values or we just say, that's what the Bible says and we don't fully accept people. It's a tension we will have for the rest of their lives. And it's a healthy tension. It's not a problem to be solved. It's one of those tensions to be managed. Because that's the way it is. I remember as a student in Bible college, we were assigned to a, a student church and I went to Bible college in Victoria and and we, uh, we had a home it or sort of half pastored a little, little church on the Port Phillip Bay at Hampton, Hampton Church of Christ. It was a small church and... Uh, we had a youth group and we had services and one Bible study one of the girls in our youth group 19 years of age name was Mary she became a Christian she went home and told her mum and her mum's name was uh, Cecily and Cecily became a follower of Jesus and she got so fired up she was excited about it she she started coming to church every week to our morning service we had a night service of about 7 people she started coming to that Made it eight. We were very thankful for that. She came every, she just couldn't get enough. She knew we had a Bible study every, every Monday night that I led, so she started coming to Bible study. She'd come every Monday night to Bible study. she just couldn't get enough of growing and living in her faith. One night she was reading the, going around in our in circle, reading the reading parts of the Bible, and she read a part of the Bible, and she held it up and she read it, and she said, isn't that bleep, bleep, bleep fantastic? About a passage of scripture. No one had said that in the Bible study before in my time. And you know, Cecily was from the other side of the track. She lived a tough life. She just said, isn't that bleep, 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 fantastic? People nodded and, you know, were shocked. And nobody said anything, but it was very clear to her that that was not acceptable, and that she was not acceptable. So Cecily stopped coming to the Bible study, and she stopped coming at night to our night service, took her back to eight, and she stopped coming to the morning service, because whenever she came, she felt that similar vibe, that similar thought, and it's not acceptable. And uh, after she hadn't been for about three weeks, I went to visit her. And I, I, you know, I, I talked with her and she told me this story and as I sat talk with her, it had been about three months on from becoming a Christian, I realised that she had grown more in her three months as a believer than everyone else in the Bible study had grown in the last two years. And we almost froze her out of the church because we didn't accept her fully. She had to come to a certain level of decency before we would let grace kick in. You see, we need to be a people who, for whom grace and forgiveness is the relational glue of the church. That's important to do. Third thing I want to share is this, that the church is a group of people who build their lives on a dependency on God. On a dependency on God. We are dependent on God. You know, this wasn't the first time when Peter's writing, that he wrote about the church or he heard about the church, the very first time the word church is mentioned in the English versions of the Bible it means the word means ecclesia or gathering, but the way it's translated church, the very first time it's mentioned in the New Testament, in the Gospels, is a conversation Jesus has with Peter. So he's heard it before. And the disciples are coming together with Jesus and Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And people say, the disciples say, well, you know, some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah or some say you're some of the other prophets. And he narrows it down and hones it in. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then we read this in Matthew chapter 16 up on the screen. Jesus replied blessed are you Simon son of Jonah for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood but my father in heaven and I tell you you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. See Jesus goes you've proclaimed me the Christ blessed are you Simon Peter because flesh and blood hasn't told you this but you've listened to my father about this. The rock is not the person of Peter. The rock is the fact that Peter had listened not just to the human echoes that he heard out there, but that Peter had listened to the father. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You haven't just listened to the scuttlebutt out there, but you've listened to the father. And I'm the Messiah. There's a dependency here that really matters. That's how Jesus builds his church, on the dependent people of God, on the reliant people of God. It's the first mention of that. And it's because Jesus is always wanting to bring his, he wants his church to be kingdom people. He's all about the kingdom. First words of coming out of his mouth recorded, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand tells stories about the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. He goes off into the region of preaching the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. There's, a, there's an emphasis now on a, on a on a kingdom. And we talk about that very often, the kingdom of God. The best definition I know of kingdom is this. A kingdom is the influence of a king over his territory impacting it with his will, intent and purpose, producing a community of citizens, expressing a culture reflecting the nature and lifestyle of the king. The kingdom is about a group of people who are reflecting the nature and lifestyle of a king and bringing a culture to our community, to our world that reflects the nature and lifestyle of that king. And we have a king who's Jesus. That's the nature of the church. It's to bring Jesus, the kingdom of God, to this world. It's a culture of bringing heaven to earth. You know, the the role of the church is not preparing people to go to heaven. Jesus is already in heaven preparing a place for you. He doesn't need your help to do that. The role of the church is to prepare people to invade earth with the kingdom of heaven your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's preparing us, his church, to make an impact and declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. We have opportunities to declare praises. And praises aren't just words. We think praises equal singing. It's part of it. But praises are life. Every time you feed someone who's hungry, Or give water to someone who's thirsty, that's kingdom work. Every time you, a chaplain or a teacher in a school brings hope and life to a student, that's kingdom work. Every time you share your faith over the back fence with your neighbour, that's kingdom work. Our role is to bring the kingdom. And Because we're a dependent people, we've got to ask the question of God, what are you saying to us now? That's a really important question. What's God saying to us? You know, we've had a, an unbelievable couple of years. Trouble is, we believe it, It's true. We've had a crazy couple of years. What's God saying to us in the midst of all that? That's an important question. Just, just indulge me for a moment. I don't pretend to know exactly what God is thinking, what God is saying or what God is doing. I don't pretend to that, but let me postulate a couple of things with you when we ask that question of what God's saying to the church. I hear us say a lot, we we want to get back to normal. Um, As if pre-2020 was normal. I, I want to suggest to you that what we had before that was abnormal. Let me just suggest, just think for this for a minute. What if that was abnormal? In fact, I think the last... 40 years, perhaps, for Western society and even the church was probably abnormal. It was all pretty smooth, really, by comparison. We didn't go through any world wars. We didn't go through any major depressions. There were some things that happened that you wish didn't happen and some terrorist stuff that was awful. But sometimes when we say, I want to go back to normal, what we mean is you want to go back to something that's a bit smoother, a bit nicer, a bit better, a bit more comfortable that we had. In those days, I think sometimes the last couple of few decades were us being caught up in what I'd call an illusion of control. That we thought we could control things, we thought we could control nature, we thought we could control human nature. But uh, you know, 40 plus years ago, we put a man on the moon and we went, wow, and then now we've got businessmen selling seats. And you know, we think we've controlled that, we, we, we've managed that part of nature now I remember 40 years ago I remember if somebody went overseas on a plane it was a big deal I can remember when I was working at Compassion if I could sit on a Tuesday look there's been an an earthquake or a a cyclone on the western side of Myanmar, I need to be there by Friday, can you get me a ticket? I'd have a ticket we've controlled, or we had the illusion of control, we can control nature we think we can control human nature We've had more self-help stuff in the last 40 years than ever before. We thought we are in control. And in the last couple of years, has shown us very clearly, we can't control nature. It's shown us we can't control human nature. Don't all these self-help things and domestic violence and child abuse and racism and sexism is as high as it's ever been, if not higher. We haven't been able to control human nature. And I wonder, I don't believe for a moment God planned anything to do with with COVID, but I wonder what he's saying to us in it. I wonder if he's saying to us, what I want, what I need, is a dependent church, not a controlling church. Don't think you can control things. The last couple of years have shown us you can't. And I think one of the things the world needs more than anything else, is a humble church. Is a humble church. A church who understand who God is, who will listen like Peter listened. And we don't want to get back to what we were, that's all very nice, we think we can control things, no, 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 no. Now that's my postulation, I don't, I don't know exactly what God's saying, but I wonder if we could think about that for a moment. What is God saying to the church? today what's he said in this period that's been very hard and very dark for us along the way what if God is saying you can't control things you think you can control you're not in charge you're my church be dependent listen to me, hear from me and see what I'm saying to you for the church of the future and sure let's get back to normal but it's not that normal it's a new normal it's a new dependency. It's a new life. How do you declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light? How do you do that? That's a really important question. I, I'm I'm looking forward to sharing what it means to be the church, I'm thinking about it through myself and what it means to be a people of radical faith, courage what it means to be a people with the relational glue of grace and forgiveness, what it means to be a people who a kingdom declarers, dependent like never before on the God of the universe who set us up to be his church. Wouldn't it be good if that was how God spoke to us and put us in action? One day, Abraham Lincoln, just finish with this, Abraham Lincoln was... Uh, a church one morning, there was a new pastor who wanted to make a good impression on the President of the United States, as you would. if would just become the new pastor of his church. So, one day he, uh, he was in there, the guy had only been there a few weeks, and there used to be a ceremony. Um, it was sort of unhealthily called sometimes the glorification of the worm ceremony. And it was when, after a church service, pastors would stand at the door and everyone would file past and shake the hands and say, well done, Pastor, well done, Pastor. We don't do it much anymore, it's probably not a bad thing. Not saying it was a bad thing then, but it's probably not a bad thing. So this particular day, the uh, new preacher had been there only a couple of weeks. And as Abraham Lincoln walked past him and shook his hand, he actually said to Lincoln, Mr Lincoln, what did you think of my sermon? And Lincoln said, it was fine, but you didn't ask me to do anything great. It's a good homily, good theology, very nice, but you didn't ask me to do anything great. I think what would be great is if we listened to God. If we're people who express our faith and our, our courage and trust and... Accept and don't compromise and declare praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. That's great. Let's continue to be the church. That is great in the right healthy sense of that word. This is an appropriate time to take communion, just to finish our service today with communion. And we've talked and sung a lot actually about. about the cross about resurrection about faith about the fact that it's Jesus we rely upon Jesus we depend upon it's Jesus who is our our rock it's trusting in the father that is the building of the church and God came to give us hope and life through the death and resurrection of Jesus if you haven't got one of those um little communion cups with the bread in the cup, and you just stick your hand up and somebody will bring it round. One of our helpers will, if you didn't get one on the way in, will bring around that because on that is a little piece of wafer, bread, and some grape juice, which is a very small and in some ways insignificant way to celebrate the most significant event, the fact that Jesus came lived and died and rose again. And we take the bread, we are mindful of his body given for us and broken. And we drink, we're mindful of his blood given for us and shed. So I want you to feel free just in the next couple of minutes just to peel off the top layer, take the, take the wafer and then, then take the cup and uh, then we're going to sing together after that as I pray. Jesus I want to thank you and praise you that you left the church with a meal it's called communion and as the word says it's a a community meal and I know it's hard for us to express that in true community in these times. Father, as we take a little wafer and we take that little cup of juice, Lord God, we, we think far bigger than what that is. We think that there was a lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And God, you look at that lamb and the perfection of that lamb allows you to accept us, the imperfect. we thank you for that. And God, we pray that we'll be the church you want us to be. You call us to be. You lead us.